The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I have had the privilege this semester of bookending the chapel program. Uh, So I come at the beginning of the semester and get a really good number in chapel. And then, you know how it is, we draw a graph of chapel attendance. It kind of goes like this all the way through the semester. So he that endures to the end will be saved. And uh, we thank you very much for taking time out to come along. Uh, Let me read from Paul's letter to the Philippians in the fourth chapter. Philippians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs 
according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless to us this reading of his truth. Many of you will know that a chief part of pastoral work is visiting with people who are sick. And I think in, in my experience in pastoral work, I've heard a lot of people talk an awful lot about doctors and hospitals and tablets and treatments. And of course, as a pastor, when you go to see people, you're concerned about the cure of souls, and you're also concerned about the cure of bodies as well. So I have a a slight interest, at least, um, when people begin to talk about health and what it means. And that's why I was a bit surprised recently when I read that some public health authority estimated that only 10% of the indicators of health are actually influenced by doctors, and by hospitals, and by medicines. The other 90% of health indicators are influenced by factors and conditions totally unrelated to medical science or to drug therapy. And as I read on in this particular report, I discovered that one group of factors which influences our physical well-being is to be found in what we know as uh, certain Christian virtues. Factors like contentment, rest, balance, equilibrium in our lives can really improve the state of our health. So as one sick person, I want to talk to other sick people today uh, because there is a, a sickness, I think, that afflicts us all, particularly at this time of the year. And all of this came to a head with me just uh, in the wake of the Thanksgiving holiday in what's known here in this country as Black Friday, that our society is sick and its sickness is revealed in a number of ways. And I think one of the main symptoms of its sickness is its insane attachment to material things. As one writer puts it, the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It's psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not need to impress people we do not like. We're made, made to feel ashamed if we wear clothes or drive cars until they're worn out. The mass media have convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. And the writer goes on to say, it's time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick oneself. Back of all, our attachment to material things and to this uh, great desire to buy and to shop, I think there is a basic discontentment at work as a driving force in many hearts. You know how the advertisers are trying to convince us that more and better is what we need? Uh, they call it need creation, and they try to manufacture need to convince us that we just can't survive without their product or their service. And if you think about it, if we actually needed what they're trying to sell us, then they wouldn't have to convince us in the first place, would they? 
And some perceptive observers have said that behind much present-day advertising, there is the quite simple, sinful practice of telling lies. The line may be subtle, it may be blatant, but it has as its goal the intentional stimulation of covetousness in our hearts and of discontentment. And we take it all in and we become discontent. One economist notes a man who is hungry need never be convinced of his need for food. And because our society is not hungry but overfed, need has got to be created and discontentment has got to be stirred up in the hearts and minds of people. And you know how it works in our own lives. We have our lists, don't we? If only I could get a new car. If only I could get a new pair of trainers, I'll be content. There's something on our list, and we think if we have this particular material thing, then contentment will flood our hearts and minds. But it doesn't work, because as soon as we get that for which we crave, there's something else, and contentment is never achieved. If only I could earn another $200 a month, I'd be content. And it doesn't happen when we get the $200 a month. And of course, it also has to do with relationships. You know how within homes and marriages, there can be a real discontent so that husbands and wives become unhappy with one another. And their covetousness and their discontentment leads them into other relationships. And their partners are left behind with the pain and the hurt and the burden of rejection, all because one partner wasn't content with what they had. You see, discontentment will destroy your peace. Discontentment will rob you of joy. Discontentment will make you miserable. And could I suggest that discontentment may even ruin your health? And for those of us who are Christians, it is sinful. How do we honor God if we proclaim a Savior who satisfies and who meets our needs, and then we go around with this attitude of discontentment in our hearts. And we know, going back to Romans 1, that the fundamental mistake is that we've been drawn away from our attachment to the Lord, and we have worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. But the advantages of contentment are many. Contentment brings freedom. Contentment brings gratitude. Contentment brings rest and peace. All of the things that are components of health. Discontentment suffocates freedom. It leaves us in bondage to our desires. And it poisons our relationships with jealousy and with competition. A contented person doesn't have to worry about the latest styles or even what to wear tomorrow. He can rejoice in his neighbor's good fortune without having to feel inferior. Contented people, hopefully at my stage in life, don't have to worry about wrinkles or gray hair or the lack of hair. They don't have to worry about how they're going to get the money for the things that they crave. They're not consumed by how to get out of debt because they have no debt. They're able to be thankful for small things. They have time for relationships because possessions and the bank don't own them. Can you begin to see how that a life filled with contentment is fundamentally a healthy life? And can you begin to see how that discontentment can destroy you, both emotionally and physically? And here Paul says... 
I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Reminding us that contentment doesn't come naturally. He says it's a lesson that needs to be learned. In fact, here in verse 12, Paul calls it the secret of being content. Well, how do we learn that secret? How do we learn the lesson of contentment? What is it that marks us off as contented people? Uh, Three things briefly. Contentment begins when we concentrate on what we have rather than focusing on what we don't have. It's the advertisers, you see, who will arouse your discontented spirit by constantly reminding you of what you don't have. And what you need to do, consciously and deliberately, is to remember what you do have. If you'll pardon the reference to an old gospel hymn that some of you may think is a bit cheesy, but it's still got some truth in it. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, what do you do? Count your many blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Trouble is, many of us find it hard to remember God's goodness. We have such short memories. Even if we begin to think of the the level of, of our material possessions and the comfort of our homes, we realize that in terms of the world's population at large, we are enormously blessed to have homes that have several rooms, to have homes that have both central heating and central air, to have access to a toilet and a bathroom, to have a kitchen with things like food processors and microwave ovens, to have a color television set and sometimes more than one in one house, to actually own a car. And then if you add to that dishwashers and automatic washing machines and tumble dryers and every young mother's friend the disposable diaper, you realize what a wonderful, comfortably supplied world we live in. And think of how the majority of our world's population live. How dare we be discontent with regard to material things? Because we have, if truth be told, far more than we need. Can we not learn to be content with what we have? Can we not learn to be thankful for the blessings we've received? And then even with regard to our family relationships, we need to be thankful. Who can measure the amount of devastation that has come on families through the if-only syndrome? If only my wife were more attractive. If only my husband earned more money. If only my husband had more hair. And the temptation to infidelity becomes strong because it's been spray-painted and airbrushed by Satan himself. Contentment means that we keep our eyes on our own side of the fence, that we learn to thank the Lord for what we have in terms of our families and our friends rather than what we don't have. And of course, the if-only syndrome can become very personal, can't it? If only I were smarter. If only I didn't have to spend so much time on all these Greek and Hebrew paradigms, unlike my friend who seems to be able to learn them so much more quickly. If only I were funnier. If only I were taller. If only I were thinner. If only I were more athletic. 
If only I had a husband, if only I had a wife, if only I had a baby. And none of those requests would mean anything were it not for the fact that we keep comparing ourselves to other people. And contentment begins when you start thanking God for who you are and what you have and for the great goodness and grace he has poured into your life rather than concentrating on what other people have. Learn to give God thanks and praise for his goodness to you personally. Count your blessings. And if you keep a prayer journal, write them down. And you'll be amazed and surprised at how good God has been to you. And that will increase your contentment. Of course, secondly, contentment is the freedom that comes when prosperity or poverty don't matter. True Christian contentment doesn't depend on circumstances. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And sometimes it's easy for us, sitting in the easy chair of middle-class Western society, to claim that we are content. But we can't claim to have learned the secret of contentment until we have experienced some of the difficulties which Paul himself experienced. The pain of 40 lashes. The pain of stoning and of shipwreck. Of hunger and thirst. Of homelessness and imprisonment. And to line ourselves up alongside Paul and profess contentment without having known want or hunger or deprivation seems a bit impudent on our part, doesn't it? But when the secret of contentment is properly learned, it means that prosperity and poverty don't matter. Mrs. Ann is the wife of a pastor in Vietnam. And when their church was closed by the police, Mrs. Ann's husband was thrown into prison. Without official papers, she and her children were forced to live on a balcony outside an apartment. Yet, in a letter to some Christian friends here in the United States, it's clear that her faith and her contentment have not been taken from her. This is what she wrote. We have been obliged recently to leave our modest apartment and for over two months have been living on a balcony. The rain has been beating down and soaking us. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we're forced to gather our blankets and run to, to seek refuge in the stairwell. Do you know what I do then, she writes? I laugh and praise the Lord because we can still take shelter in the stairwell. I think of how many people are experiencing much worse hardships than I am. I do not know what words to use in order to describe the love that the Lord has shown our family. Although we have lost our house and our possessions, we have not lost the Lord, and he is enough. As far as my husband is concerned, I was able to visit him this past summer. <clears throat> we had a 20-minute conversation that brought us great joy. With her impoverished circumstances, Mrs. Anne is streets ahead of most of us. She has learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. And so often our contentment is based on favorable circumstances. But true Christian contentment is the freedom that comes when prosperity or poverty don't matter. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I would be content if only one or two things in my life were different. I would be content if only I knew that all my grades were going to be good this semester. If only I knew that I had a place in ministry lying ahead of me. If only I knew that my 
marriage would turn out to be really happy and fulfilling. God says in Hebrews 13, 5, be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That really brings me to this final thought. Contentment begins by focusing on what you have rather than what you don't have. Contentment doesn't depend on favorable circumstances. And contentment comes through trusting the Lord. Did your car or your house or your wardrobe of clothes ever say to you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? You see, contentment through things like cars or houses or clothes is really a short-term hoax, isn't it? The things that one can buy with money are never the things that last. They can never bring contentment. True contentment, we know, comes through a living relationship with the Lord in which we learn to trust him and to rest on his promises. Notice how Paul finishes his remarks about contentment in Philippians 4.13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. No circumstance could arise which would be too much for Paul's God. And therefore, no circumstance could ever beat Paul. No circumstance could ever upset his contentment. His strength and his power came from the Lord and from his resting and abiding and trusting in him. And you see, because Paul was in Christ, United to Christ by faith, he was strengthened and he was content. And he expresses that contentment at the conclusion of the chapter. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul's content to know that God can meet his every need. And in so doing, God's supply will not be limited to the size of your need but rather will be according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I hope whatever else you have learned this semester, you have learned something about those glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You've begun to understand in, in a way you haven't understood before what great things God has done for us, his people, in Jesus Christ, his son. And to understand that because of Jesus, you and I can be content. It's Christ whom Paul offers to us as the means and the guarantee of our contentment. And yet we're congenital idolaters, aren't we? That we're constantly in this business of replacing the Lord with other things and other people. And Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories, constantly manufacturing new idols and new objects of worship. When all of the time here is Christ, who calls for our total surrendered trust and belief in him. And the antidote to discontentment, ultimately and finally, is a return to rest in the Lord and to wait patiently for him. Let me finish by quoting two Puritan divines who have something very good to say about contentment. Thomas Watson 
in the art of divine contentment says this, discontent doth dislocate and unjoint the soul. It pulls off the wheels. Discontent is a fretting humor which dries the brains, wastes the spirits, corrodes and eats out the comfort of life. And Jeremiah Burroughs, in his great classic, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, gives us the positive aspect. Christian contentment, he says, is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. When the sickness of discontentment afflicts me, I want to go to that clinic. They may not have known much about antibiotics or drug therapy, but they knew an awful lot about health. And I want to drink the sweet cordials that they provide and offer me. The more contented you and I become, not only will we be healthier, but we'll be much more effective in ministry. Let's pray. Lord, it is with shame that we confess our attachment to things, to money and the things money can buy, to our desire for material comfort and financial security. Lord, you call us to rest in you and to trust you completely. And so, Lord, we would call off our hearts and our minds today from worshipping what this world offers. And we would set our affections again on Christ, the one who was rich, yet who for our sakes became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Lord, all that we need, ultimately and finally, we find in you. Draw our hearts toward you today, O Lord. Help us to set you as the first object of every love and every affection in these hearts of ours. Cause us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Cause us to desire you more than any other. In a world, Lord, and in a society which has this insane attachment to material things, help us by your grace to be focused on Christ and to hold lightly to the material things of this world. O oh Lord, help us over this Advent season to understand again all that Jesus has done for us and to understand the great riches that are ours because of him. Help us to see that in his humble birth of the, by the Virgin in Bethlehem, that he came to tabernacle among us as the word made flesh 
and that it is in him that we behold your glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. May Christ be preeminent in our hearts and lives and having placed him in his rightful place, loving him as we ought, then, Lord, fill our hearts with your peace, that peace which transcends all human understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You're dismissed.